Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to go and do something that we used to do all the time, which is talk about two theorists in conversation with each other. We're going to do some Althusser and we're going to do some Foucault. And uh, yeah, recently we've been doing this thing where we do like an ancient theorist, a kind of medieval theorist, and then somebody more modern. We're going to take a little bit of a break from doing that. We're going to do a little bit of French stuff because I have complained for so long about not doing enough French stuff on this podcast. And so I want to do a little more. And we're going to talk about Althusser and Foucault in, in particular in relation to subject constitution. What is a subject? How do you get a subject? How do you bring a subject about? So to start with a little bit on Althusser, for Althusser, subjects are constituted through ideology. So the state is divided into a repressive state apparatus that pushes people around with coercion and secures order through force and ideological state apparatuses. And the function of ideological state apparatuses is to constitute subjects as subjects. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you're constituted as a subject, you believe that you have freely chosen your own beliefs, right? So you think that you've freely decided to value what you value, uh, to believe what you believe. And then when you're acting, you feel that you ought to act on the basis of your beliefs, right? If you don't act on the basis of your beliefs, then you would be hypocritical. You would be uh, engaged in potentially criminal or immoral behavior. So you've got to act on the basis of what you believe. And if you think you've freely chosen what you believe, then when you act in a way that's consistent with what you believe, you are acting in a way that feels free to you, right? Now, if your beliefs are actually imposed upon you through ideological state apparatuses, then the beliefs that you have, you didn't actually freely choose to have. And then when you feel this responsibility to act on the basis of your beliefs, you actually feel a responsibility to act on the basis of a kind of social conditioning that you've received from these state apparatuses. And for Althusser, the state apparatuses include things like the churches, the family, the schools. All of these things constitute subjects in particular ways. And uh, while these things are not technically parts of the state, they have a function which ultimately serves the state and uh, ultimately serves a ruling ideology that belongs to the ruling class. This ruling class being, for Althusser, the capitalist class, which has a particular set of interests that all of the different apparatuses exist ultimately to serve. So this is a vision which is very state-focused, right? The state is acting on behalf of the ruling class. The state represses people, and then the state creates uh, and conditions the ideological state apparatuses. The state arranges for these apparatuses to be reproduced. So the state ensures that the schools exist, that the churches exist, that families exist. It ensures these institutions are reproduced so that 
these institutions can continue to have their ideological function to constitute subjects in particular ways, right? If you think about any of these ideological state apparatuses, they all have a, an economic base for Altusser. The schools get their funding from the state, or they get their funding from uh, churches, or they get their funding from uh, oligarchs who are trying to found academies. The churches have ways of raising money, uh, have ways of, of, cons of getting an economic base. So the economic base allows these institutions to come into being and allows them to constitute subjects. Uh, there's also a material aspect to ideology insofar as ideology is not just a discourse. It's not just for Althusser a set of ideas or ways of talking, but it's, it's actually something that is imposed through ritualistic experiences, right? Through a discrete behavior. So when, for instance, you are in a school, you are uh, constantly having to perform the role of a student you are constantly having to do certain things on the basis that you are a student. And these things make you feel like a student. They make you feel like you are the thing that you're being told that you are, which sets you up to accept from the teacher, right, the, uh, the ideology. It's uh, every little aspect from when you, you, know, you have to hang up your backpack before you go to class and you have to sit quietly at the desk and uh, you have to all face forward and face the same direction. All of these little aspects of what it's like to be a student are part of the ritualistic experiences that constitute you as a student and therefore make you receptive to what the institution is pushing, right? So there's a, a, a very material sense in which ideology is reproduced and that can be focused on from a political economy standpoint in terms of how the institutions sustain the resources that they need to continue. And it can also be looked at from a more ritualistic standpoint in the individual interactions that make up, say, participating in a church or participating in the family. These moments of recognition where you know, the police officer hails you and you recognize that you're being hailed and that the police officer is a police officer and that you're someone that the police officer is entitled to hail, and indeed that the police officer is hailing you specifically, right? So it's material both in terms of economically how the institutions are sustained, and it's material in terms of how the institutions function. They put you through these rituals, through these experiences that frame you in a particular way. Now, a lot of people don't like Althusser's theory, and Part of why people don't like Althusser's theory is that it's very state-focused. It doesn't really give these other organizations autonomy from the state or frame them as potentially opposing the state. They are ideological state apparatuses. So they're apparatuses which necessarily contribute to the ruling ideology. And so there isn't a whole lot of space in this theory for, say, something like a, a liberal civil society, which is independent from the state and potentially checks the state right? Or for a dialogue between the state and society, as you might see in like a, a story like Kosselec. So there isn't really a space for society. There's the subject, there's the state and the apparatuses, but there isn't really society as such. Uh, there's also a lack of, of individual participation. So some theorists like, say, Zizek, like to emphasize the way in which the individual participates in constructing ideology, because for Zizek, the individual doesn't want to confront 
reality. It's painful to confront reality. The individual is drawn toward the positing of sublime objects, the positing of, of something that would make the individual feel whole and complete that the individual can pursue. So it's not just that the individual is uh, receptive to being constituted as a subject, even if there is no organization that is looking to constitute individuals as subjects, individuals will will tend to constitute themselves as subjects given the chance that they will participate in a meaningful way in this because they don't want to deal with reality. What's the reality that they're trying to escape? Well, it's not just, say, capitalist relations. It's not, say, alienation or exploitation. Indeed, Althusser is kind of skeptical of a lot of early Marxist theory that he views as too much influenced by Hegel and by German idealism. What uh, is going on here is that the individual is also having to grapple with the fact that the individual is an embodied being, is a subject with a body, right? So the individual is always already subject in the sense that the individual is always already in a body and being in a body impels you to feel that there's a separation between you and the external world, right? When you're in a body, there's you and then there's the stuff out there. And when you interact with the stuff out there, the body kind of leads you to believe that you're the one that is is doing the action, that uh, you are uh, deciding what to do and, and acting freely on a world that is external to you. And because of this, this feeling of embodiment, we tend to, because we have bodies, be receptive to the idea that we're the ones who are thinking and acting. And so this, there's a sense in which we are always already subjects in that we always already have bodies. And so we are always already inclined to view ourselves as having, uh, as, as being the actors, as ha being free and deciding what we believe and deciding what we do. So for Althusser, the state is taking advantage of the fact that we're always already inclined to think that we are freely making decisions. With Zizek, it goes further because uh, we are trying to hide from ourselves the degree to which we are uh, upset by this separation from fundamental reality, right? When you're in a body, you are not one with the whole universe. There's a, a kind of gap between you and the universe, a lack between where something you don't have, something that makes you feel incomplete because you are not the whole you're just this embodied being. And so for Zizek, we are trying to fill this lack with some object that we can uh, posit. If we were to get that thing, that would allow us to feel whole or feel complete. With Althusser, there's, there's not so much emphasis on that. Uh, the emphasis isn't on us wanting psychologically on an individual level to feel whole. It's just that because we are embodied, because we are already, already uh, open to the idea that we are the ones that are making the decisions. Uh, we tend to accept very readily that, that we are the ones making the decisions. If you think about uh, yourself in school, right? You know, one of the things that they want to teach you in school is to be conscientious and turn in your homework on time. So they're going to reward you for doing your homework. And if you don't do your homework, they're going to be upset with you. They're going to give you a hard time. Uh, but the ultimate goal here is to get you to not just turn in your homework, but to identify as a conscientious person, to think that you decided to do your homework, that you decided that you, it's important to turn it in on time, that you have freely chosen to affirm the value of conscientiousness, right? So then when you're in society as an adult, 
because you've been constituted to feel that you are a conscientious person who's freely chosen to be conscientious, you're going to feel that you have to act in a way that accords with that conscientiousness. Uh, and if you don't act in a way that accords with that conscientiousness, you're going to feel like you've in some way failed yourself or your own values or beliefs when in an important sense, this idea that you're a conscientious person was produced in you through things like the family or things like the school. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that you uh, are a conscientious person. If you had been in different structures, you might have acquired different values. And so for Althusser, it becomes very important to capture the ideological state apparatuses and flip them in some way or to turn them to constituting subjects in different ways that lend themselves toward a more emancipatory position that can deal with things like you know, the fact of exploitation. With Zizek, because we are ourselves participatory in this process, that gets it gets a little bit more muddled. It gets harder to be clear on exactly how we can get out of it, because if we are psychologically impelled to, on a fundamental human level, to uh, be lacking subjects that try to fill gaps, then it's, it's uh, not... If it doesn't come so much from the apparatuses or from the state, but from what it is fundamentally to be human, it's a more difficult problem to deal with. And that's not to say that in Althusser, it doesn't come from what it means to be human, but there is, uh, insofar as the individual is more participatory in Zizek, I think it's hard, it's a, a more all-encompassing human nature account. Uh, and certainly some of the followers of Althusser kind of posit the subject as, as a modern invention, as something which doesn't necessarily extend to uh, human nature in all times and all places, that this, uh, this feeling that we are separate in this way, that the body makes us separate, might not be necessarily always the way in which people at all times and all places would have to feel or would have to think about it, that there might be other ways of regarding it. If you look at uh, you know, ancient philosophy and, and, and things of that kind. So there's a, a question here, I think, about how far ingrained this, this being a subject is. Uh, are we just necessarily always already subjects? Uh, if we are always already subjects, how far does that go? Does it just mean that we're receptive to being constituted as subjects? Does it mean that we are driven inexorably to constitute ourselves as subjects? Uh, and the state just happens to be the thing that's there ready waiting to uh, help fill in the gap. Uh, and then questions about how much of this comes from the state. Are there things that are external to the state or should we ought to regard most of what we would view as the private civil society organizations as themselves apparatuses of the state or arms of the state? Uh, and if you start to think of the state as as really including all of these other kinds of organizations, this kind of very broad view of what the state is, where it's not just limited to, say, the public sector or to the branches of government, uh, but extends into every institution. If that's really the case, then you, know, then you have a very, very state-centered model of politics. Uh, so that's you know, kind of what I want to say to start about Althusser. To talk a little bit about Foucault. Foucault makes a distinction between government and governmentality. So for Foucault, the stuff that is to do with the state and the kind of straightforward uh, stuff that the state does is, is government. But governmentality is a set of, of norms that come out of uh, epistemologies, ways of, of thinking about what counts as knowledge that are embedded in uh, bureaucratic structures. 
So with governmentality, it's because you know, a set, sets of experts claim expertise and they say, therefore, you know, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. And they set up kind of uh, mores about what you ought to do that are independent from the law and come from these, these people who kind of offer advice to you. Uh, that you're not bound by the law necessarily to follow, but if you didn't follow this advice, you would be uh, not following the norms. There would be something not quite right about what you were doing uh, because you'd be not listening to these, these uh, expert voices that have uh, knowledge, right? So for Foucault, what, who counts as having knowledge is very important. And the way power works is very much shaped by uh, discourses about what is knowledge and who has it and who doesn't have it. And power plays an important role in constituting who is recognized as having knowledge and who isn't recognized as having knowledge, what counts as knowledge versus what is dismissed as, say, pseudoscience or not real science. So, for instance, in a very ancient society, you know, priests would be considered people who have knowledge. Uh, and if you, know, you come to a priest with a problem and the priest tells you, okay, you can solve this problem by sacrificing an animal, you know, you approaching the priest are approaching the priest in much the same way as you today might approach your doctor right? Uh, when you approach a medical doctor, you, you think the medical doctor has expertise that comes from this uh, body of knowledge that medical science purports to have, right? And so when you talk to the doctor, the doctor will give you some advice. Uh, and it's not legally the case that you must follow the doctor's advice. But if you didn't follow it, you wouldn't be listening to this expert body, which seems to have this authority in society that's widely recognized, right? That being you know, the expert body of, of modern medicine. In the same way, if you go to a priest for advice in antiquity and the ancient priest says, ah, I, I know how you can deal with your problem. You can sacrifice a goat. Right? You don't have to. You're not legally required in that case to do what the priest is telling you to do in a poly, you know, say a polytheistic society where there are lots of different priests of lots of different gods that you could go to for advice. Right. You're not required to do it. But the priest has been invested with this expertise, this sense that what the priest is part of is something that constitutes knowledge. And that if you don't listen to the priest, you know, you'd be defying the knowledge that we have and you'd be making a mistake, right? And sure, you can go get a second opinion. You can go talk to a different priest of a different God in a different temple or of the same God from a different temple. But fundamentally, you, know, you are dealing with a body of expertise. You're not trained as a priest. You're not a medical doctor. On what basis would you think that uh, you can question what this body of knowledge uh, says. So in this kind of model, we start moving away from the state and talking about individuals interacting with technocratic or bureaucratic organizations that uh, don't have, say, the backing of the law as such, but they have the backing of an epistemology, an epistemology that you confront uh, as an ordinary person who isn't trained in the thing uh, as you know, authoritative in some sense. So uh, this invites you to, to, be, to be disciplined, to on, on your own, of your own accord, comply with what this uh, power knowledge nexus is trying to get you to do. Uh, and the reason that you do this is because you recognize the epistemic authority. You recognize that th these organizations really do have knowledge, right? Uh, but your willingness to recognize this is itself shaped by the power dynamic, which put that organization and those people in position to claim that they have knowledge, right? Now, this kind of argument can be very corrosive to the authority of things like, say, public health experts. 
it can be very corrosive to the authority of, say, uh, you know, economists. When we start talking about people who give advice, but the advice is backed by the fact that they have training, advice that you don't technically have to follow, but there's a kind of um, norm of following the advice. It's kind of the, a consensus that this is, you know, it comes from an authoritative source that you ought to defer to or you ought to follow. You can imagine the student who, when they're writing a paper, there are certain kinds of people who count as sources when you're a student and you can cite them. And uh, when you cite them, the fact that they are authoritative is itself part of the reason why they're considered something you can cite, right? But if you were to cite sources that lacked that authority, uh, the paper would probably not get a very good grade purely on the basis of who is being cited at separate and distinct from whatever arguments might be made uh, because there is this, uh, this norm that particular kinds of, of bodies of experts have claims on knowledge and other kinds of bodies of people don't. So this moves you away from thinking just straightforwardly about the state. Uh, and it takes you outside of the usual kind of frame of the state, say, giving explanations or justifications for what it does, which you then either accept or reject. And it moves you into a discussion that's more focused around what kinds of non-state organizations uh, have this kind of epistemic authority. Where does this epistemic authority come from? Uh, and should they have it? Should we try to think about epistemic authority in different ways? The difficulty with Foucault is that as soon as you try to displace one kind of epistemic authority, there's a tendency for you to be replacing it rather than merely displacing it. So when you decide that you want to get rid of priests, uh, say, uh, or you want to diminish the authority of priests, uh, you want to diminish the epistemic authority, which the priest's body of knowledge ostensibly has, the tendency then is to replace this with some other body of knowledge. At the same time for Foucault, the role of governmentality has gotten larger over time relative to government. So the amount of power that functions through these norms and through these appeals to technocratic authority has expanded versus you know, the amount of power that is focused around, strictly speaking, what the law says and whether you're going to be punished for not following it, right? Like all of this lifestyle advice that we get from experts, uh, all of this stuff uh, plays a very, very large role in shaping how people live their lives. But at no point is it, strictly speaking, illegal for you to not follow it. Uh, a lot of, say, uh, COVID stuff during the pandemic functioned this way, where the government would give you advice about what to do, and then it was up to particular businesses or particular organizations to follow that advice, right? Uh, and this advice was you know, backed by the science, by a set of experts who were invested with a kind of epistemic authority. And there are people who didn't want to accept that advice and therefore challenged the epistemic authority of those experts and were relegated to uh, a kind of uh, anti-establishment position by having taken that stance. Uh, you can compare that to, say, right at the very beginning when there was an actual lockdown, when the state was ordering businesses to close with the threat of the law if the businesses didn't close and the state was was uh, actively pushing, pushing these uh, organizations around, right? That's government. That's the state saying, you have to do this, you have to do that. This is the law. There will be punishment, right, if you don't follow the law. Uh, and 
a, a governmentality which frames this as something that uh, you you could or couldn't do. You know, it's up to you whether or not to follow the advice. But there's going to be all of this ad hoc social pressure on you because this advice ostensibly comes from a set of experts who have authority, and those who don't follow the advice will be kind of framed as as stupid or. Uh, insufficiently, uh, you know, ignorant, uh, insufficiently knowledgeable, insufficiently aware of the limits of their own uh, skills, right? So just as uh, people can critique Althusser, I think, by framing Althusser as overly state-centric in his view of power, people can also critique Foucault uh, from the point of view of, of maybe uh, not centering the state as much as perhaps it should be centered. That uh, when we start talking about this ad hoc social pressure, it moves us away from talking about politics and talking about policymaking. We get into a discussion that focuses around discourses around experts, discourses around um, these other sources of authority. And it tends to move our discussion away from the state and what the state does, doesn't do, uh, and therefore away from the ability of the state, say, to change the law or to enforce uh, new kinds of rules. Uh, and so that takes you kind of out of the, the scope of the, the regulatory state. And it becomes uh, you know, more focused around personal ethics. You know, a lot of, of uh, Foucault's analysis of power is focused around the way power tends to operate in a kind of more neoliberal system where there's a market, right? Uh, and the market is what you're participating in. And you have free choices you can make on the market, but some of these choices carry a stigma of not being approved by experts, while other choices are approved by experts. And if you do them, then you also get this extra little nugget of you're doing the thing that smart people who are experts who are educated say that you ought to be doing, right? And so when you go in that direction, you still can freely make these choices on the market, but the choices that you make on the market are in some ways subtly shaped by these uh, discourses around who has knowledge and who doesn't and, and what's a good choice and what isn't. So that's kind of what I wanted to say to kick off. I know that we're not doing absolutely everything to do with Althusser or absolutely everything to do with Foucault here. That's in part why it's a joint episode. I kind of want to talk about comparing and contrasting areas where there's uh, overlap or near overlap. Uh, that's, that's where I want to start. Alex, as you were looking at these guys, uh, what stood out to you, and uh, do you think that one or the other is is more relevant today? Hmm. I like how in Altusser it's a lot about what's unconscious. Um, yeah, and it, how it brings in Lacan, Lacan, how you look for basically a kind of a, you don't look for an immediate underlying logic. Because as soon as you try and do that, um, you can just, you know, oh, let's look for the essence by reading really deeply into it or making abstractions. Um, that makes it way too simple. And maybe he's overcomplicating things, but he seems to be saying if you're doing any form of like scientific empiricism, apart from, hmm, apart from Marxism, I guess, in philosophy, then or, you know, or classical idealism, then you're basically stuck in this trap of immediacy or simplifying things. Yeah. Yeah, Althusser is very interested in trying to find a kind of pure science in Marxism that's freed from the uh, ideological uh, 
uh, pollution of ide- of what he regards as, as idealism as, as a kind of ideological pollution. So if you get rid of these uh, things that are not rooted in material processes, what's left? The stuff that just seems to be purely discursive that's not rooted in a material process. Althusser wants to prune that stuff so that you can find a Marxism that is fully, fully materialist and fully scientific. Uh, and ultimately, he has to acknowledge that in Marx, there are some things that just don't quite fit that, that there are certain things that you have to jettison in Marx if you want to find a theory that is more uh, thoroughgoingly scientific. Of course, with Foucault, th- this kind of impulse to make it a science is a kind of impulse to find a discourse that is um, appropriate, uh, uh, backed by the appropriate authority. So Althusser has a, a notion that if it's scientific, if it's materialist, that that is you know, rigorous. And if it's not, then it's not. Uh, that notion in some ways seems to kind of uh, involve privileging a scientific perspective, treating a scientific uh, things that are scientific as authoritative in a particular way, which uh, I think as Althusser got older, that bugged him a little bit. One of the things that he says, especially as you go later into the corpus, is that uh, the scientific method still has to be questioned. Uh, That just because you've got a Marxism that's scientific doesn't mean it's authoritative, that there's still a need to interrogate the scientific process itself. And so there's a concession there that it, it being scientific doesn't necessarily make it authoritative or, or uh, nece- uh, in and of itself, but that being scientific is in some way progress, that it's some in some way better than uh, something that's idealistic or pre-scientific. So science is a, a value in Althusser, whereas in Foucault, I think it's something to be more skeptical of insofar as when you call something a science, you're not just calling it, say, a kind of philosophy. You are calling it something which has authority, something which ought to guide our action, right? If you say, this is what the science says, you're saying that this is what this authority says that you ought to do. The science becomes an authority rather than a method. Even though the whole point of science is to continually update itself. Because right. if and, you change... And this is the sense in which Althusser would say that you know, if you properly treat Marxism as a science, then it's a self-criticizing enterprise, right? So it wouldn't be closed off in that kind of way. Uh, and this is how the, you know, the defense of Marxism as science usually involves talking about science as a method rather than as an authority. The issue is that, and this is you know, where, where the critique of epistemology becomes important, when we say that something is a method rather than an authority. And then we say, this is a good method. We implicitly say that the method has authority, Hmm. right? So we say, oh, we shouldn't regard it as a method. We should engage in self-criticism. Indeed, that's part of the method. Part of the method is to do self-criticism. Well, the idea that the authority is self-critical itself suggests complying with the authority. But I guess, yeah. In Foucault, the, the authority could always be a discourse. So it doesn't have to be people telling you this. But the idea with Marx is that he doesn't have, as long as, long as you're not a Stalinist or, um, I guess, a left-wing communist, the type that Lenin disliked, you would basically 
you wouldn't have the same definition at the beginning and the end of the work. You would start with something like primitive accumulation and end up with capital. So, um, you know, you don't assume that whatever your theory is, is the same thing as what's concretely in reality. So it always folds in on itself. Um, and if you're doing that, then isn't that kind of what Foucault's doing when he's saying, no, it's not. Well, when I say what Foucault's doing, genealogy, this idea that you can rewrite the past with an ideological bent or bias, and that you, you build up your own concepts and you redefine concepts kind of willy-nilly. Yeah, I mean, we could think about like, say, um, Soviet era Marxism could try to defend itself by appeal to the idea that it's a self-critical process, right? So the Soviet uh, Marxist who is theorizing historical materialism can say, well, yes, the state is committed to Marxism and is therefore committed to what I'm doing. But because Marxism is scientific, it's a self-critical process. So even though the state is committed to this particular thing, it's not a unitary authority of the kind that critics of the Soviet Union would, would say that it is because it is self-critical. A lot of people would not be satisfied by that kind of response from the Soviet scientist. It seems that while you know, um, historic, you know, Soviet Marxism is self-critical in some sense, the degree to which it's self-critical is heavily delimited by the fact that it's the state ideology and that it needs to in some way be used to buttress or reproduce the Soviet state, right? So when you say, well, this is this is self-critical, if it's aligned with the state, there's going to be a limit to the degree to which it can be self-critical because it has to be compatible with the reproduction of the state. One, right? Yeah. I mean, if it's aligned with the state, then it's going to take certain things as given and obvious anyway. And it's probably going to make those things as... Hmm, applying to more than one region of history, whereas if you're doing science, it's supposed to be, at least for Althusser, one aspect of the current, of the present. And the present's not yeah. a linear, continuous thing. So, And in the Soviet Union, all of these different institutions are straightforwardly arms of the state, because the state straightforwardly provides education, and the state straightforwardly uh, you know, tries to produce particular kinds of families with particular kinds of structures. The state is, is uh, straightforwardly involved in these institutions. So... Yes, these institutions might allow for some level of pluralism, but there is a, a real sense in the Soviet Union that all of these institutions in some way ultimately are interfacing with the state. And I think this is why some people regard Althusser himself as a Stalinist. They regard him as, as a focused too much on the sense in which all institutions can be ultimately connected to the state. Uh, and therefore, uh, if you're trying to change the way people think or change the way people believe, uh, treating these institutions as things to be captured, things to be taken over, uh, that either belong to one particular set of people or some other particular set of people, and therefore espouse one particular way of thinking or some other way of, of doing things. Uh, that This kind of frames all of these institutions as you know, either propagandizing for the ruling class or propagandizing for the working class. They are, they are either arms of a particular kind of subjectivity or arms of a different kind of subjectivity. And for those who want to view these things as discursive or deliberative spaces where lots of different things are possible that are kind of fair 
spaces where individuals can come in and inject what they think. Uh, this model isn't particularly compatible with that. A, it frames those individuals as not being free to have their own thoughts in the first place. The individuals who think that they're participating in deliberative spaces in that way are ideological in the sense that they think they've freely chosen to participate and to say the things that they say, right? So the individuals who think that they are coming into deliberative or discursive spaces and contributing or participating are themselves acting ideologically. Um, and so if you say that individuals are always being constituted and that they're not participating in the in the constituting process it becomes very difficult to imagine something like a public sphere or public realm or a civil society these things become very difficult to fit into something like Althusser's theory and so for theorists who want to insist that individuals have a more participatory role in things that individuals contribute in some way to what goes on uh, and of course, for, for liberals, the individual is the kind of base unit of society, the fundamental ontological thing that exists. So if the individual is fundamentally what exists and the state is something individuals create or the state is something peoples create in something like a you know, Rousseauian or Carl Schmitt kind of view, uh, if these things precede the state and then the state is answering in some way to the people or to, to individuals, uh, then this kind of theory wouldn't make any sense at all. So Althusser's theory is very radical in the sense that it completely changes the ordinary relationship that you see in liberal theory between the individual and the state, uh, where the individual is constituted by rather than coming in and participating and saying you know, what they want and being represented. The idea that the individual could be represented is ridiculous on this kind of view because you know, the individual has been constituted. So when the individual is being represented, the state is just uh, reflecting itself back at itself. It's reproducing itself rather than actually engaging with something external or outside itself. So this question pops up in Althusser, is there an outside to the state? Or is what, what is happening just the evolution of the state across time, right? Where at a certain point, it becomes impossible to maintain the material base for the ideological state apparatuses as they previously existed. So they start to change. As their material base changes, the way in which they ideologically constitute subjects changes. And so you get different kinds of subjects as a result of a sort of evolutionary material process, right? Uh, there's no real outside to that process. When we start talking about Foucault, since a lot of the emphasis is put on non-state organizations that are drawing on a discursive or epistemic authority, we get outside a lot of the straightforward material or economic uh, processes that in Althusser's work drive a lot of this. We end up uh, talking more about discourse and how we discuss these things with each other and what we regard as authoritative in the discussion versus what we don't regard as authoritative. Uh, and I think that that aligns with more closely with the way liberals tend to frame the discussion. So Foucault is more compatible with liberal views to the point where some people frame Foucault as himself a neoliberal theorist who uh, doesn't like thinking about uh, society through the lens of the state and wants to get away from the state completely and frame society as instead the result of individual interaction with markets. And I think there is a way of kind of framing Foucaultian power as a kind of power that operates through markets rather than uh, through the uh, 
traditional constituting mechanisms. But Foucault doesn't exclude government. He doesn't say that governmentality has completely displaced or replaced government. Government in the traditional sense is still operating. It's just not taking care of nearly as much as it uh, previously did. That as we move into the more market-oriented society, there is space for different kinds of power relations and dynamics to emerge that could not have existed at previous points. Um, though I think in talking about you know, priests, I think there are cases where there's you could argue that there's some level of governmentality existing at earlier points. It's not as if there would have been none, but in earlier kinds of society, it's more straightforwardly the case that you know, if you break the law, then you get punished. Uh, and that's a lot of what how power is transmitted is through viewing punishment, you know, having someone be punished in public, say the criminal who's forced to fight in the Roman arena, you know, in front of everybody is punished in front of everybody is crucified and put on the road and, and the punishment is, is shown. This is what happens if you do this thing, you know, then you get punished. Uh, you can do this thing, but we're going to catch you if we can. And if we do, we're going to punish you. you know, and it's very uh, straightforward in that respect. Whereas with governmentality, there's got to be an expert body that has epistemology. And to some degree, you have to have uh, people who are capable of interacting with body uh, authorities that are grounded in bodies of knowledge. So you have to have people who are, uh, I, I think it, it fits better with a more educated population that can imagine that it is participating in, an, in knowledge by following the correct uh, voices or following the correct bodies of knowledge. You know, the person who goes to college is more likely to interface with this in the way that I think it's designed to be interfaced with. You know, if you look at someone who doesn't go to college, there's a, well, why should I you know, trust any of these people uh, kind of attitude. But if you've gone to college and you've been you know, taught kind of what counts as, as expertise and what doesn't, and you're invited to participate in it in so far as you're invited to view yourself as an educated person who therefore, because you're educated, will tend to pick you know, listen to the right people. You might not know enough to necessarily uh, say on the basis of your own education what's right or what's wrong. You might not know very much about uh, uh, epidemics. You might not know much about ep epidemiology or about viruses, right? But you, because you have an education, know what kind of person you ought to listen to about that stuff and what kind of person you ought not to listen to. So drawing on your education, uh, you will pick the authoritative voices to listen to and you won't listen to the non-authoritative voices. Right. Whereas someone who doesn't go to college hasn't been invited to view themselves as participatory in the power knowledge structure to the same degree. You know, as we moved into the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, way more people began to go to college and began to think about themselves as you know, knowledge workers, as part of a knowledge economy, as themselves participants in knowledge production. And so if you are a participant in knowledge production, then you are much more likely to uh, view the discourse around knowledge as a discourse which is in some ways beneficial to you because you get employed on the basis that you have this knowledge. You have a degree, right? So you have access to jobs and opportunities on the basis of having that degree. And if people didn't buy into you know, the value of this knowledge, if people didn't think that these degrees meaningfully made you an expert, uh, then they wouldn't be very valuable and you wouldn't be able to use them to get paid more or to get treated better in the labor force. Part of what's gone on is, you know, as the humanities have, have critiqued themselves so much, they have diminished the sense that the humanities have 
some kind of body of expert knowledge that's uh, valuable that someone who has a degree in the humanities has, and because they have it, uh, you know, they have skills that ought to be valued or prioritized. And as this sense that the humanities actually involve uh, dealing with knowledge diminishes, the ability of people with degrees in the humanities to leverage those degrees to you know, get people to listen to them or to get you know, people to uh, give them better jobs with better pay declines. Part of what people in the social sciences you know, are always talking about, ah, oh, those economists, right? Economists have found a way to get what they do to be regarded as knowledge and to be treated as experts and deferred to and listened to as if they were you know, ancient priests. But people in many of the other social sciences have not been able to get their disciplines treated in that way. Uh, and so there's a question, a methodological question of how do we find a method which would give us power, right? How do we find a method which would be regarded as having authority such that what we have to say would be more influential within the society and would be treated with more respect? And this kind of methods war is constantly uh, aggravating people in disciplines like my own discipline, politics or sociology or anthropology. There's this question of how do you actually get people to treat what we've done as, uh, you know, that what we have is knowledge. Because if they treat it as knowledge, then it will have this disciplining effect on those that we talk to and those who listen to us. Uh, and that's a, a difficult problem to solve because when you're in the open saying, how do we find a method that's authoritative, uh, the very fact that you are having that discussion itself diminishes the possibility that anything that you might settle on might be regarded as authoritative. Why? Because it's not even, I mean, we say it's discourse, but the basis of discourse, if you read Discipline and Punish, it's all about bodies. And if you, if you were to watch a body in all sorts of separate institutions across society, there's the same kind of blueprint, whether it's a school or a prison or whatever. So, you know, people inside the academic discourse wouldn't be able to just think up a more powerful discourse. It would have to come from, like, for example, the market quantifiable, you know, to some, some other, some external source that changed multiple things all at the same time that cut through. Yeah, I think there is significant scope in Foucault for talking about ritual. You know, we talked a little bit about ritual and the role it plays in Altusser, but not as much in Foucault. Uh, but yes, you're right. There's this experience that uh, bodies have in these different institutions for Foucault that has an effect on uh, how, how the people who, who have those bodies or are living in those bodies think. And of course, with punishment, it's very obvious. So with, when government does punishment, your government afflicts the body with physical punishment, which uh, sends a signal not just to the one who is punished, but to those who see the punishment of what happens when they break the law, when they don't do what they've been told to do, right? Uh, when we start talking about the institutions that are involved with governmentality rather than with government and with disciplining rather than with punishment, it becomes a little bit more subtle and more nuanced. So it's not just you know, whipping the body. It becomes uh, you know, things like creating a structured routine for your day in, in you know, the prison or in the, uh, uh, in the school, you know, something that you uh, are doing all the time. Or in medicine, how you analyze the body even changes yeah, the same yeah. way, you surveil it. Right. You, you, wa you, you have a sense that you're being watched by other people. Uh, and this is, yeah, this is another aspect that I, I think it's important to talk about. When we say, okay, you know, these people have expertise because they've got knowledge and therefore you ought to listen to them. There's also this sense that everybody's going to see what you're doing. 
right? We're all going to see it and we're all going to see whether you're actually you know, conforming to the mores that have been taught as the things that you know, you know, somebody who's good would do, right? So you know, in, in school, for instance, when you're a little kid, sometimes they have the reading competition where they'll see like how many books can, can you read versus the other kids within like a month. And as you read, you will, you know, put in, you know, oh yeah, I read this book, I read that book, how many pages, how many words was it? And the kids compete with each other, right? And there's no you know, punishment if you don't read. Uh, and the reward is mainly that, you know, you'll be the one on the top of the board. We'll all be able to see whether you read and, you know, why ultimately should you read? Well, you should read because, you know, this is the thing which will make you into someone who has knowledge ultimately. Um, but it's not the law. You're not required to read. Uh, the schools are not very good at requiring students to read. And if you think about like, a, you know, the, the reading check is a more kind of old fashioned way of getting someone to read, right? Where you assign a book and uh, you've, got to, uh, you've got to read it. If you don't read it, then there's going to be a reading check, a quiz where you'll be asked a bunch of questions about what's in the book. Often tiny uh, uh, questions about minutia, you know, like, uh, what happened with the horse after Mary went into the barn, right? You know, and these questions are not really designed to see if you thought about the text. They're just designed to see if you read it. And if you get the questions right, then you get a good grade. And if you don't, then you're straightforwardly punished with a bad grade, right? It's a simpler way of trying to get someone to read that is much less effective. Uh, when people read uh, under that kind of framework, they're doing it because they very much feel they've been forced to do it. And they don't read very closely. They just read well enough to, to get the basic facts down so that they can do the reading test. But th if you then tried to get them into a literary analysis discussion of the book, they'd be completely disinclined to do it. And you see in schools where they do this kind of thing, you know, yeah, all the kids can pass the reading check maybe. But then when the teacher tries to have a discussion about the book, nobody wants to have a discussion because reading it was no fun because it was done under the uh, shadow of the, the reading check. Whereas if you, you give the kids a competition about reading where they uh, will be seen to have read or to not read, not just by the teacher, but by each other, uh, it kind of invites the students to develop this, uh, this discipline. And then maybe you supplement it by having a, a 30, you know, 30 minutes a day, a quiet time in the middle of the day where, of course, the students could read. You know, and you'll say at the beginning, if you want to read to advance your, uh, your uh, reading target, you can, but you don't have to. Uh, then the student kind of imagines that you know, they've chosen to read, uh, if they read, and they get to feel good about it, not just because the teacher is going to reward them with a good grade, but because they're going to be at the top you know, relative to other people. There's a, a disciplining effect there when it's not focused around punishment that is arguably just as effective, if not more effective than doing it through punishment. You could probably get people to read a book with punishment, but you can't get them to feel the same way about the book that they would feel uh, if you discipline them into reading it. Disciplining them into reading it will cause them to have a much more positive relationship with reading and with books, which will ultimately get them to uh, you know, endorse, the author the, uh, endorse reading and endorsing what comes out of reading in a, in a thicker kind of way. You think about the medieval peasant who knows that you know, his hand will be cut off if he steals, right? The medieval peasant may not steal, but the medieval peasant isn't going to feel wonderful about the law on that kind of basis. You need something like the, you know, the church or the mosque to make the peasant feel good about following the law, to have that other kind of function. And so for Foucault, the, 
the set of things that operate through these disciplining processes have expanded over time and the amount of stuff that they cover expands. Uh, and the degree to which subjects are themselves participatory in knowledge structures and in imagining themselves as knowledge workers has expanded dramatically. The number of subjects with the kinds of education necessary to frame themselves that way has gotten much, much larger. And within those spaces, there's a lot more of this of this pressure. You know, among people who go to college, there's a lot more pressure to say, um, you know, to to follow the advice regarding something like the pandemic or something like vaccines. And there's a lot more pressure to do that because everybody is is part of the knowledge system. Now, that's not to say that the knowledge workers are you know, necessarily wrong about anything. It's not to uh, give any particular view about vaccines or about pandemics or COVID or any of that. Uh, you know, there's uh, science is, is incomplete and imperfect. And the same goes also for other ways of trying to get people to do stuff. It's uh, really the purposes of this is just to kind of interrogate the processes by which we get people to do stuff. And you can get people to do stuff for positive reasons or negative reasons. You know, in the case of Althusser, the ideological state apparatuses can be run on the basis of the bourgeois ruling ideology, or you can try to flip them for the purposes of changing the fundamental character of the state, capturing it, making a dictatorship of the proletariat, which can then flip all of the uh, apparatuses. Right? There's a question there, by the way, about which comes first. Do you establish uh, a dictatorship of the proletariat, get control of the state, and then use that to change the ideological state apparatuses? Right? Do you use state power to reshape all of the other institutions? Or do you go on a long march through the institutions and try to flip the individual institutions for the purposes of eventually getting the state. Those are two very different ways of framing it. I mean, can you even get out of the ideology trap? Because it's meant to be a trap, this idea that what you have in theory and then what you have in the concrete world, there's a gap that you can't separate. And that gap is inside theory itself. And then it's actually inside the real itself. So you can never really access or remove that gap if you're in this kind of epoch or era. Yeah, there's a narrow kind of sense in which, of course, you can change it because you can change who the rulers are. So if you change what the ruling class is, then that will uh, have all sorts of downstream effects. If you change what the material base of the whole thing is, uh, you know, you make the proletariat the ruler rather than the bourgeoisie, then that will have all these downstream effects. So there's some straightforward sense in which, of course, you can change it because you can change who's ruling and therefore what the ruling ideology is. At the same time, I think you're right that there's this other sense in which that in and of itself doesn't change very much at all. And it's this sense in which you know, the fact that we are embodied beings that perhaps, uh, you know, in the language of someone like a Lacan, you know, experience lack or feel incomplete or feel to some degree estranged from the wider universe of which we are a part. Uh, and that we often cope with this by imagining that we are in control or we're in charge or that we can get things that will give us fulfillment. Uh, insofar as that kind of frame is true, then it's there's no form of politics that will be fully satisfying for the person because the person is trying to do through politics what cannot actually be done, which is reunite the human being with the universe in this world. You can imagine, you know, technological ways of, of potentially trying to get around this, you know, things like hive minds and, uh, you know, uh, things that get rid of the Habesian separation of persons that would allow, say, 
you to be a person, but also experience unity or totality in some way. And there are lots of other ways of trying to imagine getting at this, you know, meditate and get enlightenment or uh, uh, you know, return to the one from which you emanate, you know, like Plotinus you know, talks about doing, or you know, to have a, a psychedelic experience or to participate in a religious ritual that gives you this, this uh, glimpse of, of unity. But for someone like uh, who has a more materialist focus and who kind of grounds all of this fundamentally on the separation of persons, the fact that we are in this body and not in that body, that we are a person and not a tree, that we have this experience of being this and not that, uh, that fundamentally estranges us from ultimate reality and leaves us dissatisfied. No matter what we do, we have this sense that uh, we're, we're not quite in communion with ultimate reality because we are over here in this case and not out there and in communion with all that. And therefore the principles are never really seen concretely. The things that can only be seen in their effects, they have to be always hidden. Or Yeah. So I think a lot of this stuff then invites you to ask kind of big questions about, can you make things better by changing the way power relationships work? And I think a lot of the time when people read Foucault in particular, there's a sense in which reading Foucault kills the, the sense that you can make the world a better place. You know, when Foucault talks about this, this uh, governmentality that's more embedded in the market, there are some people who read this as preferable to the way it used to work in the past. So governmentality is better than government. So as we move toward governmentality, we're making a progress. I'm not sure that that is really what's going on in Foucault's view. Uh, there are some people who will view governmentality as a regression, that this move into governmentality is, is in some way something worse because it's a less honest kind of power. So some people will view it as a negative thing and want to return to a more straightforward kind of, of uh, power politics where this is the law, you'll be punished if you don't follow it, but it's up to you. Uh, and then, you know, I think there are some people who just view this as, you know, changing in the form of, of the way power works, but ultimately you don't really make any kind of positive or negative there's no better or worse in that. It's just a, a change in the way in which it operates. Uh, and I think that for a lot of people, ultimately, that's where the Foucault perspective tends to lead to a, a view that it, we're just kind of changing how things operate, that there is no real getting out of it. With Althusser, there's, a, on the one hand, an obvious sense in which you can get out of it by changing what the ruling class is. Uh, you can at least very much change fundamentally how all of this is done and in theory, uh, if you change the ruling class to the class that includes you, then it won't be as bad for you in various ways uh, as it would have been when you were subject to it and not uh, one of the rulers. At the same time, though, I think there are these implications in the theory which suggest that it may be uh, much more difficult to achieve any kind of fulfillment or uplift through politics than was previously assumed. And I think that... Uh, a lot of a lot of this these perspectives have had a kind of uh, politically dampening effect that people who spend a whole lot of time in Althusser or Foucault or in a lot of these different theories gradually kind of come to the view that uh, even if they could do something revolutionary, it wouldn't make that much difference. Even if they could do the revolution, which is difficult to do and dangerous to do, it wouldn't make that much difference because ultimately you'd come around to the same place you were before. And while there are a lot of uh, followers of Althusser who are committed to revolution in some sense or the other, uh, ultimately, what we've seen over the course of the last you know, 
70, 60, 70 years is a kind of, of withering away, at least in the rich Western democracies, of revolutionary activity, a kind of, of a reduction in the amount of it and in the seriousness of it. When it does appear, it's it's not entirely serious. It's kind of a, a performative or, or uh, it's not as if it comes with a bunch of thinking about what would act, it would actually take to do a revolution, what would it actually involve to capture the state or to capture these different uh, institutions. There's a, a kind of withering away of that as, as people become convinced that even if you could get power and use it to change social structures, you would just end up kind of shuffling things around without ultimately getting it. What's really wrong with being human, that there's something wrong with being human or not quite right about being human, that politics can't ultimately touch. Uh, and I think the there's a temptation to embrace that kind of view and adopt a more of a kind of religious attitude or a spiritual attitude to all of these things. At the same time, though, I think sometimes we can talk our way into really, really abstractifying stuff that is still on a visceral level very unpleasant, you know, just to not have the stuff that you need to even participate in this conversation, to uh, not have access to things like healthcare or education or uh, uh, energy or housing, to not be able to get these things, to not be able to to do many of the basic things that animals do, like procreate and have children or, uh, you know, uh, sleep peacefully through the night. Uh, well, not all animals can do that. I mean, there are predators out there. But, you know, like a lot of the things that are just uh, prerequisites for even participating in this conversation, it's very difficult for a lot of people to do. And we don't have to imagine that politics by itself can deliver us from the frustrations of being human to imagine that politics could make things marginally better than they are now and at least give more people you know, a real possibility of engaging with all of these ideas. Uh, and that's where I tend to get kind of hung up on some of these theories. Some of these theories I, I start to, to get a little frustrated with because I, I go, you know, we can kind of talk ourselves to death. We can talk ourselves into doing nothing, into feeling that nothing we would do would matter. And there is a tendency in a lot of the really, really contemporary uh, continental political theory to, to do this, to, to talk about all of this to the point at which we can't really imagine doing any of it. And then this starts to produce, you know, looking for some other revolutionary subject, some other uh, person who might do something interesting. And so people start getting invested in, uh, in other kinds of actors that are not really uh, engaged in any of these debates uh, or uh, philosophical. For instance, uh, this will date when this episode is recorded, but I'm going to use the example. There's the mercenary leader who just uh, tried to lead the uh, rebellion against uh, the, the Russian state. And when the mercenary leader led this rebellion against the Russian state, there are all these people on, on the internet who got very, very excited because someone was doing something that was uh, a plausibly revolutionary action. This person was was in an armed rebellion against the state, was, was openly defying the modern state and trying in some way to, you know, and it didn't get very far. Ultimately, there was a deal cut where he goes into exile in Belarus and all of his troops get off. And why was the deal cut? Well, the deal was cut because this mercenary leader who's been, you know, through all these conflicts and these soldiers who have, you know, mercenary soldiers who have you know, been in Syria and in, in places where uh, 
Uh, yeah, all sorts of violence is occurring. Ultimately, the guy didn't want to spill blood. He, wa he was not willing to spill blood on behalf of the project of taking the state. Uh, because he, he didn't really believe, I'm sure, deep down, that if he took the state, that anything good would really come of that for anybody. On some level, I, I think the, the only reason he was rebelling is that he was concerned for himself. He was concerned that he was about to be fired or pushed out by the Russian Ministry of Defense. Uh, he was concerned because you know, apparently the report is that his men were hit with a rocket sent by the Russian military and that they were potentially being targeted by the Russian military. The reason that he rebelled was not because he was committed to a revolution on behalf of some new system of government or some new ruling ideology or some new power structure, right? The reason he rebelled was, was survival, was to save himself which I think ultimately the, the concern that a lot of people have is that all anyone seems to care about in politics anymore is the pure Habesian, you know, biopolitical things, the, the, the pure survival, the, the production and reproduction of life itself, uh, and very little else beyond that. And so this, this coup, which I think got people excited because it was, uh, it, it felt like revolutionary activity, but revolutionary activity that someone else is doing that you don't have to put yourself at risk by by watching or rooting for. You know, you can sit there and root for it because it, it's apparently revolutionary activity, but you don't have to go there and actually do it. You're not at risk. You don't have to go and fight with these mercenaries. You're behind a keyboard in a Western country. You, know, you could just go, oh, wow, revolutionary activity. But what was so disappointing about it, I think, for the people who did get excited about it, is that ultimately not only was it not a revolution, but it was not even motivated by the kinds of goals that motivate revolutions. It wasn't motivated by a desire to displace the ruling ideology or to displace the government uh, or to you know, change or invert you know, the power structure or what, you know, what epistemologies are regarded as having authority and what aren't. It had none of that. It was just an attempt on the part of this guy and his men to survive. That was all they were after which is the same thing that everybody's after all the time in modern politics. So ultimately, there's nothing very exciting about it at all. It was completely boring. But we didn't realize that until you know, the deal was cut and we found out that he was going to Belarus. So it was this, this uh, very exciting moment that just ultimately issued in nothing. And that's, I think, what's frustrating about these theories. They, they, ultimately, they kill the thing that you think when you start reading the theory you're, you're trying to develop, which is you know, a revolutionary attitude or the attitude that produces change or a politics that can produce change. So you go into these theories and you come out of them feeling that uh, you know, even if you were to succeed, you would then just become you know, the face of a new power structure that would ultimately not operate that differently from any other power structure. And so far as all power structures are involved in disciplining people and constituting subjects and all, you know, this is what power systems do. So you start to go, well, you know, what's the point of acquiring power? Because then I would just be doing what, what people with power do, which is always the same, even if it's a little bit different. Uh, but this flattens out so much of, of what goes on with power. You know, it's still the case that by trying to get state power, people got us things like, you know, healthcare systems that, cover everybody at the point of use or you know, uh, government you know, programs that build housing to make sure that people have access to affordable housing. You know, this stuff, it's not like it issues in absolutely nothing. It's just that it doesn't have the kind of completely transformative effects that people are sometimes going for when they get involved. Although that's not the mechanism. It's not like you desire nice services, therefore you chase state access. 
It doesn't come from there, yeah. according to Foucault. It and if you before. if you do get yeah, if you do get involved in politics just because you want to chase you know nicer state services, you're not going to be willing to die for you know marginally better public services. Mm-hmm. The the thing that ultimately drives the state to provide marginally better public services is the fear that it's going to be ripped apart by revolutionary actors, right? But the revolutionary actor isn't sitting there going, "I'd like marginally better public services." The revolutionary actor is trying to, in some way, heal themselves through politics. They're in some kind of of terrible pain, right? That they think that they can solve through politics and they can't solve it through politics. But if they, that's confronted, then there won't be any revolutionary energy. And if there's no revolutionary energy, then there won't be the marginal improvements to the healthcare system that only come from the, the state's fear ultimately of, of what will happen if it doesn't give people something that makes them sufficiently comfortable that they don't develop this revolutionary attitude. And I think what, what has been realized is you don't have to, if we have these other kinds of ways of conditioning subjects, then we don't need to just buy subjects off by giving them the things that they uh, that are necessary for them to live well. We can give them these other kinds of dreams to get hung up on. Uh, and those dreams can take the place of, of giving them the things that they actually would need to live marginally better, like you know, decent housing. Uh, decent healthcare. We frame those things as themselves. Uh, you know, we frame even the fact that people want things like healthcare as themselves the function of power. We frame, you know, you want housing, but you know, these are just things that you've been told to value. At a certain point, it becomes too abstracted away from human needs. We start to doubt whether human needs are what they are. What they are. Uh, we start to get into a kind of a if we think that everything is is power relations, then we start to get to a point where we can't be sure of anything really at all, uh, except that we don't want to die, and politics becomes very survival based. If they were told to value it, then why would they need? Why would it be ideology? I thought if it's ideology, it's so obvious that you wouldn't need to either fend off revolutionary activity or train people to think it. It's just something that comes about from not even the state, but say medicine or law, science, anything else. Yeah, I suppose to, to be more specific there, I was kind of thinking about what the critical theorist says about the person who's pursuing reform, right? So the critical theorist says, uh, you know, when you're trying to get a marginally better set of public services that you've been you know, conditioned, you know, constituted as a subject in such a way that uh, you think that pursuing these these marginal improvements and services will make things better, but ultimately you need a much more fundamental overturning. The thing is that the critical theorist then moves beyond saying ultimately you need a much more fundamental overturning and then starts to say even the fundamental overturning would not actually overturn, that the processes of power are uh, exist regardless of who's in charge, regardless of who the rulers are, the rulers constitute subjects, right? And so regardless of what authority there is, the authority has a kind of disciplining governmentality that's associated with it, you know, regardless of whether it's science or, or it's pseudoscience or it's priests or whichever body of, of experts you would choose to trust, right? Uh, there's still a governmentality that goes with that. And so even if you replace all of the priests with scientists, then science will acquire many of the same 
got features, the same kind of governmentality which religion has. So even though you've replaced the church with the, the scientists at, at the university, you haven't actually changed anything because in replacing the church with the scientists, you've just made the scientists more like priests. And so ultimately science becomes more like the thing because it has to, because it has to perform this particular political role or function. Uh, and so that, that kind of becomes a, this way of thinking kills the impulse to do anything. First by saying reform isn't good enough, you need revolution. Then by saying revolution isn't good enough, nothing is good enough. Uh, we are always incomplete human beings. Unless that's the hidden normativity of Foucault. Basically, what you decide to focus on and describe in non-normative language is what's normative. Is what you're saying you should do? Yeah. Well, Dodging the yeah. question. There is, a, there is a normative, there is an ideological function to theory which frames revolution as insufficient. <laughs> right? So, but, but if you say, well, there is, then you, you can get into an endless loop with this where every way in which you would interpret this theory would itself be an instance of the kinds of power dynamics that the theory is nominally used to critique, right? If the theory does cause you to view things differently, then the theory has worked as a kind of, of uh, as, a, as a kind of disciplining mechanism or as a, a form of power or as a way of, of ideologically constituting. If reading Foucault causes you to change your attitude or change your politics, then Foucault is not just uh, you know, freeing you. There's you know, potentially a, a, a set of people who are Foucaultians who have tried to use Foucaultian methods, who claim that Foucaultian methods have a kind of authority that are you know, using that to get you to, to think or behave in particular ways. So these things are always having to then justify themselves. Well, of course, you should apply the theory to itself. You should you know, critique the theory with itself. Uh, and at that point, Foucaultianism becomes not that different from, say, you know, the Althusserian uh, or kind of Soviet Marxism or, or, or what have you. There's always this uh, ultimate retreat back to, well, of course, you have to use the thing to keep critiquing the thing. You can't start to treat the thing itself as, uh, as, a, uh, as a rigid authority and this is why I, you know, I'm often kind of drawn to the idea that you just need a more syncretic approach to political theory, because if you start trying to adopt one specific position, the specific position, no matter how much the specific position advises you to be self-critical, can never be fully self-critical with respect to itself. The only way that you can actually have critique is to have multiple positions. And so the only way that you could really get outside the state or get outside you know, power systems is to posit some other, something outside. There has to be some possibility of an outside for there to actually be, say, a, a plurality of things that compete with each other in some way. It can't be that you've defined everything as inside, because if you define everything as inside, then the whole thing is a closed loop, uh, a closed system. So you have to have a political ontology that allows for some kind of competition among multiple entities. If you don't, then, uh, well, and then, you know, there's the issue of, of competition itself. If you frame, a, co a competitive system can itself be framed as an overarching system, which dictates what the things that are competing are doing. So there's this issue with every time you try to posit an outside, you then start trying to develop a system for thinking about what's outside. Uh, and then those things are inside that system, right? And so then if you are thinking about that system, you end up needing other ways of thinking about that system, which compete with that way of thinking so that you can critique that system as if from outside, right? And then to be able to do that, uh, 
you know, then people will start to make theories of those systems, which were previously used to make sense of the things underneath them. There's, there's always a tendency to try to get out from the level that we're all thinking on and to get to a level above all of that. And I think the issue with that is that when you try to get to a level above everything, the same problem is just replicated at a higher level. And then there's an impulse to try to get to a level above that. Some of it is, I think, fundamentally that people are trying to be something other than what we are. People, And in this way, the theories that involve, say, criticizing the subject for trying to um, be whole when the subject can't actually be whole, right? Or saying that it's human nature for the subject to try to be whole when the subject can't actually be whole. Those theories themselves, uh, in offering you the promise of understanding the situation that you're in, themselves offer you a promise of being complete or whole by having the theory. And so I think what starts to happen is that people start to become more focused on having the theory that would make them correct than they do on actually doing anything. And so they get so deep into political theory and so deep into uh, these, these questions about power that they become completely divorced from the actual questions about who has power, who doesn't have power, what should we do with the power when we have it, uh, these kind of basic questions, which are the questions that we all get involved in in this stuff for, questions that we start to view as naive once we get many, many layers deep into all of this. Uh, we end up getting so far away from those questions that we become, you know, there's a, a tweet that I just read uh, right before we got on that uh, stuck with me about, uh, you know, that sometimes being an intellectual is basically the same thing as powerlifting. It, where you think that you will become complete by just uh, having going going deep enough or going enough levels up. And that the thing is, because of how human beings think, it is always possible to posit another level, a higher vantage point through which the theories, you know, first you have a theory, then you have other theories that are antagonistic with that theory. Then you imagine a vantage point from which all of those theories can be subordinated or all seem to be, you know, beneath the theory that you've reached. Uh, and there's a tendency in, in theory to do this, to just keep trying to one-up everybody from a higher vantage point, uh, to look down on the other theories from, from this other point. And the more you do that, the further away you get from the ground. And initially, you know, the point of theory was to help you navigate what you did on the ground. You know, initially, you started thinking about theory because you wanted to know what to do. And then you just get into a competition to be higher than everybody else. You know, it's like, oh, well, I'm on a hill and oh, I'm on a mountain. Well, I'm in a hot air balloon. Well, I'm in a 740. It just it becomes a one upping thing and a status game at that point, rather than an actual quest after truth. Anyway, uh, there, I'm, there's a lot more that we could say about Altisar and Foucault, but we're at an hour 17 and it's probably a good time to wrap up. So thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.